On today's show, meet the real-life inspiration for the movie Hunt for Red October, nuclear submarine captain Alfred McLaren, who also played a game of baseball on the North Pole. I'm Dustin Planholt, founder and CEO of Life's Tough Media. This season of Life's Tough, but Explorers Are Tougher is made possible through the generous support of Ripple. We hope you enjoy the series. This is Life's Tough, but Explorers are Tougher. I'm your host, Richard Weiss. If you're new to Life's Tough, I'd like to welcome you and tell you a little about myself and the show. First of all, I love the outdoors. I always have and I always will. And I've also been surrounded by explorers my entire life. My father, Richard Weiss Sr., was the first man to solo the Pacific Ocean in an airplane. The New York Times called him the Lone Eagle of the Pacific. Some of my fondest memories were standing out on our lawn underneath the stars with my father telling me how explorers use the stars to navigate. I guess we talked about a few other things as well. And speaking of talking, I host a television show called Born to Explore. It's on PBS stations around the country, so please check it out. And finally, I've been president of the world-famous Explorers Club. Just about every great explorer of the 20th and 21st century has been a member, including Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Jane Goodall, Theodore Roosevelt. Some people say it's like Harry Potter's Hogwarts, only for adults. I've heard stories that would make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. You see, explorers are the type of people who walk in space, go to the bottom of the ocean, and stand on the highest summits. Scratch the surface of any explorer, and you'll find they're all storytellers. This show is about their tales. The movie Hunt for Red October was a submarine spy thriller in which two Cold War-era naval captains played a deadly game of cat and mouse. Our guest today, Captain Alfred McLaren, is an ex-nuclear sub-captain who many people feel is one of the inspirations for the film. He's also credited with playing the first game of baseball on the North Pole. He's a former president of the Explorers Club and now author of a soon-to-be-released book, Emergency Deep, Cold War Missions of a Submarine Captain. Captain McLaren, welcome to Life's Tough, but Explorers are Tougher. Thank you but very much, Richard. Beautiful day. Well, you know, I- interestingly enough, as a, as a naval guy, you're living in the U.S. about as far from the water as one can get. You're in Boulder, Colorado right now. The reason I came here was to do my Ph.D., and although I had been as accepted at the Scripps Institute of Oceanography to do my doctorate in acoustic engineering, I had an 11-year-old at that time with me that was a real problem. And having been a former surfer growing up uh, much of my life in Southern California, I knew that taking him to La Jolla, California would be the last thing in the world. So it was perfect to bring him up here into the mountains where he couldn't get into any trouble, and it turned out well. 
Fred, you and I have known each other for about 25 years. I, and I don't know if I've ever asked you this question, but what did you think of the movie Hunt for Red October? Well, you mentioned a few minutes ago cat and mouse game, and I want to address that. Uh, during my era, and I think it's still true, our nuclear attack submarines were so quiet that when I was asked, oh, maybe about eight or 10 years ago on television about cat and mouse games, I said, no, it was never that way. Whenever we were the cat, the mouse never knew we were there. Whenever we were the mouse, the cat never knew we were there. So it, with one exception, which I can tell about if we have time, which resulted in, in uh, on a diesel boat getting depth charts, I've never been on a boat that's ever been detected. Now about that movie, all of us would have liked to have thought that we were like Sean Connery. And I have to say that uh, I thought the U.S. skipper was a little bit too wimpy for an attack submarine commander's personality. And I used to really squirm when he would have the conferences with the Sonerman Jonesy. Because on all my Cold War missions, and I've been on over 20, we always had maybe six or seven sonarmen on watch at the same time, uh, led by a chief sonarman, in my case, Chief Peterson, who was phenomenal. And the relationship was very crisp and formal. Not, what do you think, Jonesy? That was crap. Anyway, the other thing is, my boat had a towed array, and whenever, if that um, uh, typhoon class, Soviet typhoon class, had shifted to the worm gear, I could have been in the Indian Ocean and picked them coming up out of port, because that was all seismic frequencies, which go thousands of miles. So, uh, in my mind, the best movie that really reflects the submarine leadership and personality was the German movie Dust Boat. That's the best one ever done. And it really shows you truly what a submarine crew is like, which is the pretty uh, rough group that you either fit in with or you don't. And you can imagine what it was to lead this bunch of wild horses. So how does one lead a crew because you're going to be under water for a long time in close proximity. You have uh, missions that are very critical and potentially deadly. Are, are, are you able to mold people on the job or are you screening them before they even get on that uh, sub? A combination of both, Richard, but it's like hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Uh, what really counts is a basic empathy, uh, probably from the time you were born with other people and being able to handle other men in particular, uh, experience. And by the time I had command of a submarine, I had probably had over 11 missions under my belt. And I'd just come off a four month one where I just relearned all my skills. Uh, we trailed a Soviet um, Victor class attack boat all over the <laughs> Barents Sea and the Norwegian Sea as it was looking for ballistic missile submarines, didn't find anybody. 
but we stayed with him the whole time. And I, I was personally trailing him four out of every 12 hours supervising that. So I, the other thing is, I was also um, at that time, probably still am, very expert in martial arts. And I think that any member of the crew knew that where push came to shove, I could beat the crap out of any of them. And men respond to that. You don't have to say anything. You don't have to, you just sort of project it. And the other interesting thing, I look back in my submarine career, and I never raised my voice ever, I don't think, never lost my temper. But uh, as my crew members would say, my eyes would say everything. I would just look at somebody, and that was all that was needed. And But I always taught people, always I always had, unless it was an out-and-out emergency, I always had time to explain what we were doing. And then another thing I did on all our Cold War missions, I had the sound-powered phones manned throughout every compartment, and I had somebody narrate so every crew member knew what we were doing. We were close proximity to a Soviet submarine, or in one case, doing an underwater surveillance of one at very close range, every member of the crew knew what we were doing. Uh, so it's communication, calmness, and but the main thing is they absolutely have to have confidence that you know what you're doing, and you have to have that, what I achieved always was that perfect melding of the submarine being ready, the crew being ready, and my personally being ready, and are just sort of becoming one. So you mentioned a few moments ago that you were depth charged, and uh, I would imagine for many years that was probably classified information, but being just in a submarine for many people is claustrophobic, and the idea of an emergency down there kind of frightening to the layperson, What's it like to be depth charged, and how do you keep the crew under control during that? It's, it's, let me tell you, that is a peak experience in life. It happened on the second mission I was on on a diesel boat back in the summer, way back in 1958. It was sort of toward the end of the day. We got apparently spotted by a fishing boat uh, south of Vladivostok. And then uh, we thought, and then all of a sudden there was a lot of activity and the ships, um, anti-submarine warfare ships were coming out of Vladivostok and we were pretty excited. We thought, oh boy, we're going to get to watch an exercise. Now this is back in 58, the bad years of the Cold War. It turned out we were the exercise. We had been detected um, and it was two destroyers and a called Scory class, and uh, up to six small anti-submarine warfare, um, like torpedo boats that carried depth charges, and they got a hold of us, uh, detected us, and right away we went down deep, and during the summertime, this was during the summertime, the water is warmer at the surface and it gets colder as you go down. So we call this the acoustic layer. And we, the captain thought, well, we'll get below the acoustic layer. 
their sonar can't reach us. However, that didn't work because they'd already um, right away made a couple of quick passes over and dropped these small charges. I would say they were sort of like shape charges. I'm sure if they'd hit the hull, they might have penetrated it. But what they were doing is they were getting echoes on us from beneath the acoustic layer. So, and this was the end of the day. We were already had used up about, oh, maybe more than probably approaching 60 to 75% of our battery capacity. Uh, the atmosphere was getting bad and here we get caught. So they end up holding us for about seven and a half hours and the two destroyers sort of got on our tail and then they'd vector these torpedo boats over top of us and then you'd hear this splash. It was like just out of a World War II movie. Everybody's sort of looking up overhead as if they could see it. And then you just wait till the damn thing goes off. Bang, bang. And, and of course, what occurred to everybody is they're trying to do one of two things. Either kill us. Uh, and back in those days, um, certainly they'd get away with it. Or drive us to the surface, capture us, and uh, imprison us. Uh, lots of nice things to worry about. And the skipper tried various things like uh, releasing uh, bubbles of, of air that might divert their sonar. We, we um, released a, oh, something like a decoy, thinking that would lure them away. And, and a couple of times we'd make bursts of speed up to flank speed, which is close to maybe 20 knots underwater. But if we had a fully charged battery, that was our half hour rate. You could only do it for a half hour and then you didn't have any battery anymore. So that was only good for five or 10 minutes. Finally, things were getting pretty desperate and about oh, two or three in the morning, it occurred to the captain to get up into the layer, not below it, not above it. Above it, you sort of have a sound channel, which you can hold somebody tremendous distances. And we got up into the layer, pointed the nearest destroyer, and increased speed and ran right beneath it and headed north and escaped. And we had to go north and out of the La Perouse Strait between Sakhalin Island and um, the northernmost island of uh, Japan, which I think was Hokkaido. And we got away. But when we got finally got to the to um, to snorkel depth and brought in that fresh air, uh, all of us had tremendous headaches, and about only oh, ten or twelve of us were on our feet because oxygen was down to less than fourteen percent. Uh, our battery had been gassing hydrogen, and that was about eight or ten percent. And then you can imagine what carbon dioxide was. And, uh, and finally, we brought in that wonderful fresh air. But we were really lucky. This was the summer of 58. And I tell about this in my new book, Emergency Deep, for the first time. And uh, one of the lessons I learned from this as a young officer 
is there no point in being a submariner, much less being a submarine skipper, if you're going to run around getting detected by the enemy? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I think that you have to reflect upon that. I, I um, About 20 years ago, I had a near-drowning experience in a canoe race where I sucked into a strainer. And I've played that scenario in my head and what I could have done, should have done, what it could have happened. That scenario of that event, especially the way you guys debrief, has to have played through your mind many, many times. Over and over again. And I talked with my officers many times about this. And so, as you can imagine, from that time on, uh, my heavy emphasis was always on remaining undetected, undetected. And, and in my own case with my officers, we use the German method of ranging with a periscope, that is using the telemeter marks that are actually in the lens rather than using the statometer. And I always required, taught my officers to make observations of eight to five seconds in duration, max. And then from that, within that period of time, it'd be bearing mark, range mark, say half a division high power, and then they dropped the scope, and then they, they had to relate to me the angle on the bow, what was the, what was the hull number, what they saw, and... Uh, as you can imagine, now and then there'd be an officer that just couldn't do it. And it was really a shame when it was be a more senior officer who might be going to command. But as far as I was concerned, that was it. Uh, because the worst thing that can happen to a submarine is to get detected. I know that um, when people see movies, they go, ah, that only happens in movies. But from private conversations, you've had with me, and I don't think any of these things are top secret anymore. You were off the Siberian ice shelf. And so when people think of a large nuclear submarine offshore, they think of deep water. But you've told me stories where you've had gravel underneath you and ice on top. Do you want to elaborate? Are you able to elaborate on those uh, sort of stories or exercises? Yeah. Yeah, that was the subject of my first book, Unknown Waters, which came, which you know, all this, all these books are on Amazon, and, uh, and during the summer of 1970, we got the prize of exploration assignments in the Arctic, and that was to survey for the first, and as it turns out, the only time in in history, to to do a hydrographic survey of the entire Siberian continental shelf. That is the and you have three shelf seas up there, the Laptev Sea, the god-awful East Siberian Sea, which still makes me shudder, and then the Chukchiv Sea. And during that, that summer, we surveyed about 3,400 nautical miles for the first time in history. Now, all those seas, being shelf seas, uh, were known to be shallow, and then to be covered with thick ice. So uh, other than the first part of the Laptev Sea, 
most of that survey was done the 4,600 ton submarine, almost 300 feet long, running just 20 to 30 feet off the bottom. And, and this is unknown waters. You don't know whether it's going to be smooth or rocky or what. And clearing the ice by that much overhead. And there were many times where ice would come right down to our depth and almost be grounded, and you'd have to weave yourself through that using this wonderful um, uh, frequency-modulated sonar equipment called the iceberg detector, and that's where I did most of my conning. And uh, you're constantly moving, and sometimes you'd get as close to six or eight feet from the bottom, and you'd have to shut down one side of your nuclear power plant so you didn't suck the silt up, and then there's some, uh, and then many times, and I, I covered just the operational parts of this in a crisper fashion in my forthcoming book, where all of a sudden you discover a deep trench that might be fifty or sixty feet deep and fairly wide, half mile wide, and it'd be perpendicular to the, to the coast, and you'd think, oh boy, this is great. We could, we could go further down south in this and interdict in wartime a Soviet ship or something. But then all of a sudden, a huge ridge would pop out of one of these that might be 30, 40, 56 feet above the surrounding bottom. So my wife says I still have dreams about this about once a month. And and so, you know, you were constantly on your toes. And I mentioned the god-awful East Siberian Sea. That's about a 1,000 miles across. And its, its average depth is only 131 feet. Well, my submarine from the bottom of the keel to the top of the sail was 55 feet. And when you get run into ice, and I'm talking about dynamically created ice, not icebergs or ice islands that go all the way to the bottom, you've got a problem. And uh, in that book, Unknown Waters, and then I go over it again in my forthcoming book, we invert towards the, about the time we got pretty confident, not overconfident, but thought we can handle this, we went into what we call the ice garage, where all of a sudden, we're, we're really tracing out a navigable route, trying to trace the 20 fathom curve, that is 120 feet all the way across, but times time you had to back off. Well, anyway, the damn thing went due south, and then it turned back on itself, and all of a sudden we entered a situation where I had ice right down to the bottom in front of us. We had ice on either side of us that probably was no more than a uh, half a ship length on either side of us going to the bottom, and we had ice within 12 feet of the top of the sail and only six feet of, of water beneath us, and we stopped and we hovered. The first thing I did is pass the word, don't anybody move, and then we held that neutral buoyancy, and the only thing we could do is back out very slowly the way we came. Now, the trouble with my submarine is that it had only a single propeller, 17 feet 
in diameter. And anybody that's handled a single screw ship knows that when you back, it does two unfortunate things. It squats and it backs to port. Well, this was not an option. So main thing was to keep the whole crew calm. And I got on the sound-powered phones with a man on the throttle, and I would just have them spin the propeller in reverse about two or three revolutions, and we'd adjust our trim. And it seemed like it took an eternity to back out, but we got out successfully, just perfectly, all the time only being about six feet above the bottom and the ice very close overhead, 10 to 12 feet. And we finally got back out in the deep water, probably uh, something over an hour and a half. And uh, I call that the second worst experience in my life. So be sure and ask me what the first, what the worst one was. Well, I, I'm, I'm just, I, I will in a second. And while you have obviously ice water in your veins, my hands are sweating from that um, story. But not all events were you know, uh, a, a full level of stress. I mentioned early on that you are credited with playing the first game of baseball on the North pole. Yeah, I was, that was the first nuclear submarine I served on the sea dragon. And, um, I, I joined her about two months before we were to be the first submarine to go from the Atlantic to the Pacific by the North pole to, to, go to our new home port, Pearl Harbor. And we did three really, well, a whole lot of interesting things, but the most interesting one is we're the first and only submarine to spend a week looking at the underside of icebergs, which is a very dangerous business. And I wouldn't recommend doing it ever because these things are so unstable and they can go almost 2,000 feet beneath the sea when they're freshly calved. Then we surveyed for the first time in history, we discovered a deep water passage through the Canadian, or well, we, we call it the International Northwest Passage. There'll always be a dispute between the Canadians and ourselves as whether it's international or it's Canadian. And then from there, we went to the North Pole and uh, we surfaced very close to the North Pole, probably within uh, 500 yards. And we were all prepared, to, we, and we did play the first game of baseball at the North Pole. And what we did, it was the 25th of August, 1960. The North Pole was right at the pitcher's mound, and we aligned the base, bases such that if you hit a home run, you circumnavigated the globe. If you hit the ball into right field, it was across the international date line into tomorrow. If the right fielder caught the ball, he would throw it back into yesterday. <laughs> and, of course, sliding took on new meaning. I mean, you could slide, run, you could steal a base from first to second, hit the second base, and then slide on the ice another 20 feet and be tagged out. And um, that, that baseball is in the Baseball Hall of Fame and uh, – and um, we're never sure just what day the game ended. <laughs> when you get down to it, we know when it started, but all, all this running back and forth across the international date line, it was really crazy. 
That, that's a great story. Fred, we have about uh, four minutes uh, left, and I know that you ha- you're, you led me up to this worst experience. It was on my, um, one of my, uh, probably about my third or fourth mission. And, and we were over in the Russian Far East. It was off um, Vladivostok again. Now, I stress we were totally in international waters. But I mentioned that acoustic layer. Well, we approached to what I thought would be an ideal position for gathering intelligence. Uh, and we transited under that layer and then popped up through the acoustic layer to periscope depth. And almost immediately, I put up the periscope and took a quick look around. And almost immediately, there were two torpedoes, steam torpedoes, coming right towards us. And uh, I remember sort of glancing down and seeing sort of white face in the white faces in the control room. And if there'd been war shots, uh, I had the option of blowing to the surface and hoping they'd pass beneath us. But based on what I'd seen around us, which was a couple of Soviet anti-submarine warfare ships, not that close, but close enough, that was not an option. So I just had seconds to make a decision to do something, and I noticed a very slight right bearing drift. So I moved Queenfish with about a 15-degree rudder to port. Now, we're, we're going just minimum turns, but I'm having to present minimum aspect to whoever fired those torpedoes. To make a long story short, both those fish went running down screaming down our starboard side, the nearest probably being between 10 and 20 feet away, and the other one about double that. And once they got past, we emergency deeped and got the hell out of there. Well, we found out about 24 hours later that we had inadvertently wandered into the right into the middle of a submarine exercise where a submarine was firing these two practice torpedoes at one of these anti-submarine warfare vessels. Now, okay, so they were practice torpedoes, but they would have had five or 600 pound plaster heads. And if they'd hit our propeller or rudder or anything like that, we'd have been in deep, deep trouble. And, but I'd say all told, Richard, I had probably, oh, not more than three to five seconds to react and do the right thing. Well, I guess that's where your your training comes into place. And, you know, when I hear these stories, it makes me sit up and think, you know, I'm so grateful that people like yourselves are at the helm of these type of ships, you know, protecting our country and, and serving our best interests. Fred, one, one last uh, plug for the book. Your book's coming out when? It's coming out in May, University of Alabama Press. Amazon is already advertising it now, so it can be pre-ordered. I've already looked at the the proofs almost a month ago, so it's in press now. Uh, Probably early copies for review will be out probably uh, as early as late March or April. And I think uh, I've already told Lee Langan and um, uh, 
Milbury Polk that they'd be getting a couple, each a copy for for review and the, or whatever they're going to do with it, the Explorers Club Journal. Richard, I'd like to finish with one last one last thing. Sure. Uh, most people don't know about me is I come from a family which has an over 500-year military tradition. Members, male members of my family have fought in every war um, since the Revolutionary War. I mean, almost with, without exception. And before that, uh, since I'm mostly Irish and Scots and some Spanish, uh, my forebears before that all fought the British. And I was brought up on all this. And when I was five years old with other cousins, we had a non-traditional upbringing in that at age five, we were all, all started on uh, horseback le- uh, riding lessons. We were the first generation, unfortunately, to take boxing instead of fencing, which I think is a shame. And by age six, we were jumping horses and then to our utter disgust, now there was about six or eight of us, we had to take dancing lessons for grace and balance, which was thoroughly disgusting to us five and a six-year-old. <laughs> but I was given the choice by both my mother or grandmother or to consider that either I'd be a military officer or I could become a Catholic priest. <laughs> um, well, I, you know, I'll, I'll leave that choice up to other people, but... Um... I'm just look. I, you and I know each other for 25 years. We 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 didn't get into how much you've meant to my life. Um, many of our listeners may not know this. I'm president of the Explorers Club, and I tell people all the time: if not for Captain Fred McLaren, I would have never been the president of the Explorers Club. You took me under um, your wing, like you did so many other people, and so I'm appreciative of that. And Fred, thank you for being on Life's Tough, but Explorers are Tougher. I think you're the toughest guy I know. <laughs> you never know. I'm, I'm approaching 89 now, and I just survived a heart attack. <laughs> I got to admit, though, I feel 20 years younger. And uh, truth is, Richard, uh, I'm never going to slow down, and I'm never going to retire. I'm, I'm having too much fun in life, and I always have had fun in life. And maybe that's the secret. All right, Fred, thank you very much. Thank you, Richard. Every great expedition has to come to an end, but that doesn't mean we can't stay in touch. Send us your favorite expedition pictures and tell us about your most memorable journeys, large or small. All right. Get something to write with. Here are my coordinates. www.lifestuff.com slash explorers. One more time. www.lifestuff.com slash explorers. That's it for today. Hope to see you out on the trail.